The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, we're asking the question, how do detection dogs and DNA sampling help stop international wildlife crime? Through conversations, I met today's guest, Dr. Samuel Wasser, at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Ivory Crush in Denver, where I learned that he is probably the most qualified person to answer this question. Dr. Wasser is the research professor and director of the Center for Conservation Biology and also holds the endowed chair in conservation biology at the University of Washington. Sam's lab pioneered methods to extract hormones, DNA, and toxins from scat, as well as methods to train detection dogs to locate these samples over vast wilderness areas. And today, we're going to find out how this works and how it guides the International Consortium on Combating Wildlife Crime. Welcome, Sam, and thank you for joining our wild world today. Uh, Thank you. Nice to be here. It's great to have you here and, and speak with you again. You have a lot of fascinating information to share, so why don't we just jump in and get started. The uh, majority of your work focuses on SCAT uh, during the brief introduction just now, but would you tell us what led you to this current work and focus, why, and was there a particular defining aha moment that got you here? Sure. Um I, uh, in the late 70s, was doing my Ph.D. work on wild baboons in southern Tanzania. And one of the things I was studying was how uh, baboons timed their reproduction in relation to environmental pressures. And I realized that there was a lot of um, reproductive failure was a very important method of, of making sure you gave birth at the right time. So either... Um, suppressing your ovulation or early abortions. And I wanted to have a way of better confirming that. And I pioneered tools by around the mid eighties to um, acquire uh, stress reproduction and nutrition hormones from the feces of the baboons. And I quickly realized that this was an incredibly important vehicle because there's nothing more accessible from wildlife than is their feces or scat. And it then made me realize if I could get DNA from the scat also, then I wouldn't even have to see the animal 
to know what was going on. I could take the DNA from the sample, tell the species, sex, and individual identities, and then tie that to the hormone measures, and that would allow me to apply this to a wide variety of questions. So that was the first um, critical component in terms of the methods, but the other thing was where I was working in southern Tanzania was in the Mikumi Salu ecosystem, and that was perhaps during the, the peak of elephant poaching, the most heavily poached area in Africa. So while I was doing all this work on wild baboons on foot, I was running across poachers all the time, running across elephant carcasses and thinking, this is just awful. There must be a way to be able to apply these methods to um, this system. And eventually I got the idea of, of um, using the DNA to map where the poaching was actually occurring. Wow, so this is this is amazing. I can only imagine what that would be like to be going through uh, those areas in Tanzania during that time. It, it's an awful time, and it's an awful time now. So this gets us to the crux of today's conversation. Um, you mentioned it a little bit, the information, starting with baboons, that uh, your samplings of scat gather. So how did you transfer this to elephants? How is it unique, and and and? So, and what more does it tell you about the elephants themselves that you could create this map? Well, first of all, um, let, let me just back up one moment because I, I um, mentioned briefly about the hormones and DNA that we're getting from the samples. But one of the really important things about SCAT in general, um, aside from its accessibility, is so much of the products that are the, an, the animal is using or is exposed to is being excreted in the feces. So I mentioned stress, reproductive, and nutrition hormones, and the DNA to tell me the species and sex of the animal and the individual identity, but also I can tell what the animal was eating from the DNA in the feces. We can measure a wide variety of toxins in the sample. And if you think about being able to use this information across broad ecosystems, you can ask all kinds of important questions. And in fact, one of the first applications of this to elephants wasn't even a uh, DNA application. It was really looking at what is the impact, the long-term impact of poaching on elephant populations when you um, first they poach the large bulls in the population, but then as the tusk size starts to decline because the big bulls are all gone. They start going after the matriarchs, the adult females that are really the leaders of the group. And what does that do to the stress and reproductive status of the animals? So it's just kind of an example of the, the wide variety of questions that you can ask from, from these samples. So, uh, and um, yeah, so, uh, I, so it's a little bit of a distraction, but I, I, it's no, a actually, really important that- element. That we're going to get into that a little bit deeper, but let's, um, as you said, let's back up a little second and bring in the other important component of this, uh, of what your lab does, the dogs. Why don't you tell us about, um, because you were running through the, the field trying to find scat and doing that, but um, dogs come into this picture. Tell us about the dogs. Where do they come from? How are they trained? And what are their u- unique capabilities in this field? Sure. So... In the late 90s, when we finally developed the ways to get DNA out of the samples, we started looking at, at ways of um, getting better population estimates from the animals. Um, and we thought that maybe people were starting to explore non-invasive methods, mainly using hair, 
at the time and uh, where they would, you know, create um, what we call hair snags. It's typically for something like a bear barbed wire that's chest tight to the bear and they put a, something really stinky in the middle of the barbed wire so the bear will crawl under and pull out its hair um, on the barbs of the barbed wire. And then they could get DNA to do a technique called mark recapture to see, you know, how many animals, how many of the individuals you caught initially do you recapture after successive times? And that tells you uh, the proportion of the first group of animals you caught and how, how much they make up of the whole population. So one of the important things about that mark recapture method is that it really demands that every animal have an equal chance of getting caught. So we call that lack of capture heterogeneity um, because you want, if you're trying to figure out how many animals there are and you catch some animals more readily than others because some are trap loving, they like the smell and they go in there over and over again. Some are really shy. Maybe they're nervous of people that they can smell the scent on these um, traps so they don't go near there. So we thought that using feces or scat would be a good alternative method. But one of the things that we were worried about was that a lot of times animals use their scat or dung to mark their territory. And if that was the case and you had individuals out in the field trying to just visually find scat samples, it too might create a uh, collection bias where animals that want to be, want to be uh, more conspicuous, like the territory holders, would um, leave their scat in really easily to find areas, whereas animals that wanted to be more concealing would, would, um, and cover up their tracks, so to speak, would, would defecate in areas that were, were hard to find their samples. So that would create a sample bias. And then it got, I got the idea that we could use something like a narcotics dog to find the samples. And um, that was kind of how this whole thing was launched. I started to uh, collaborate with uh, the Washington Department of Corrections that train all the narcotics dogs in the Pacific Northwest. And we found that these dogs were just phenomenal in terms of being able to find samples in the wilderness. And it really changed everything because we already had the ability to get this huge number of a huge amount of information out of the scat. But now we had this phenomenal detection tool that could actually acquire samples from many different species at the same time. It only finds them from the species it's trained on, but some of our dogs can do up to nine different species at once, so we can monitor literally all of the predators and prey at the same time, survey huge amounts of landscape, and get a vast amount of physiologic, dietary information, toxin information that we can tie to the environmental pressures that they're being exposed to, and really understand what's going on, not only at the species level, but at the community level. So things like trophic cascades, which is when you remove a keystone species out of the population, and this has a ripple effect through the community, we can be monitoring all the species at the same time and seeing how loss of one species is affecting dynamics between other predator and prey in the, in the ecosystem. Similarly, when a species recovers, starts to cut, recover, for example, in Washington State, where the wolves are starting to come back into, into Washington, we're able to use dogs to look at how does that affect dynamics between uh, the coyote and the deer and elk. Um, so it really is a phenomenal tool because it allows you to put together so many measures and collect samples on a very fine temporal scale. So as the environment is changing, 
you are monitoring how the animal's response is changing at the same time. This is just astonishing, and many of our Wild World listeners uh, will be familiar with what a lot of you just a lot of what you just said: trophic cascades, wide variety samplings, large landscapes. Because this is the focus of this show, um, so I can understand, and our listeners will understand how phenomenal and critical this. A component that you've developed, the dogs and the lab and the DNA testing will be to stopping wildlife crime. So um, before we go into how you use the data and the organizations that you work with, um, most of this, so, so from the sampling, you've been able to determine geographic origin of species. And from what I understand, your focus now is on the African elephant. So how does this work? We had mentioned briefly earlier this a map. So how does this all come together between the dogs and the sampling, being able to collect this massive amount of data? How do you pull it all together? Okay, well, so um, the, our lab is kind of divided into two parts. We do a, a wildlife monitoring, which I've just described, and then we do wildlife forensics science. And the wildlife forensic science is really trying to figure out uh, when animals are killed, where are they actually killed? And about half of our lab is devoted to the illegal ivory trade. Um, just to put this into perspective, I, I know it's been in the media a lot lately, as it should be. Um, the poaching of the African elephant has increased uh, enormously since 2006. Um, you probably know that ivory was banned in 1989. Ivory sale was banned, and, and uh, this was done at CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, because elephants went from 1.3 million individuals in 1979 to about 600,000 individuals in 1989. So in, in less than 10 years, they declined by 700,000 animals, and that created the ivory ban. Um, that was an enormously effective act of legis international legislation. Uh, it was coupled with very intensive law enforcement, and everybody realized we had to do something to curb demand and couple this with law enforcement, and it really stopped poaching for for about four to five years. But then what happened was uh, international authorities thought that the trade uh, was under control, that they, they'd stopped the illegal trade, elephants were recovering. So they withdrew a lot of their law enforcement aid to, to many of these poor countries. And they no longer could maintain all the new equipment they had bought and things started to unravel. And around the same time, the Chinese economy was starting to grow. And one of the ways that people show their newfound wealth in China is to buy products. And ivory was one of the most cherished products that they started to buy. So it created kind of a perfect storm where um, the ability of these poor countries to maintain uh, their law enforcement operations was starting to decline again because Western aid was, was withdrawn. And at the same time, you had this huge surge in demand so what happened is this was a progressive increase, but by 2006, it had taken off so that right now, there we estimate based on the amount of 
large ivory seizures that are made annually that about 50,000 elephants are being killed each year right now. And there may be as few as 350,000 elephants left. Just now, for- the number of elephants, just one quick thing. The number of elephants being killed is you hear that the number varying all the time. And it's because people use a variety of different methods to determine this. So you often hear the number of 30,000 elephants killed, but really it's a tricky number to get a handle on. So that's why we developed a way to determine this based on the number of large seizures that you have in hand and figuring out how many kilos of ivory represent an elephant and what proportion of ivory that's smuggled is seized. And when you do that, you can see that there are about 50,000 elephants killed a year. That is a huge threat to the ecosystems of Africa because elephants are keystone species. And their loss is creating huge impacts, not only to the ecology, but to the economy and to the national security. So figuring out how to address this problem is vital. Well, this is an astonishing, tremendous amount of information that we've just covered in a very short period of time. So this gives our listeners an idea of what all we're going to get into a little bit further in the rest of the show. So stick with us. We're talking with Dr. Samuel Wasser of the University of Washington Center for Conservation Biology. And you can find that online at http colon backslash backslash conservationbiology.uw.edu. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back with uh, our wild world. This is Ellie Weiss, and my guest today is Dr. Samuel Wasser, probably the foremost person to be able to answer the question of what uh, of how to track ivory and what being able to track ivory has for implications to wildlife trafficking and international wildlife crime. So earlier we talked about, Sam, that you collaborate with the International Consortium on Combating Wildlife Crime. What or who uh, and what organizations comprise this collective and how does your work collaborate through this and help guide? Well, the International Consortium on Combating Wildlife Crime is uh, the, the, abbrevi- the acronym for that is IQIC. So IQIC um, consists of Interpol, the International Police, uh, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, the CITES Secretariat, the World Customs Organization, and the World Bank. And it's essentially a consortium of law, international law enforcement entities that are trying to complement one another to really address wildlife crime. And the initiative behind this is that wildlife crime has become the fourth largest transnational organized crime in the world. It's just under uh, narcotics and weapons sales and human trafficking. Uh, it's worth anywhere between 10 to $20 billion a year. And it is causing a, as I mentioned uh, earlier, huge amounts of economic, uh, ecological and uh, damage as well as serious problems for our national security. Because right now, um, in a number of places, uh, we have insurgents occupying areas and poaching and using the ivory to trade directly for arms to uh, support their causes. So it's a multifaceted problem. That's also why President Obama recently uh, created an executive order for a wildlife crime task force because he realized the seriousness of this to national security. Um, so uh, the consortium has was developed to really try to get a handle on this, and it's really important to get a handle on this because while the terrorism component of this is real, um, it's also easy to uh, overemphasize its importance in the problem. And we really have to understand how much of the ivory that's being poached is really involved with these terrorist activities versus very smart ivory dealers who are trying to trick the system by moving their ivory into a smuggling route that um, people have suggested involve terrorists, but really don't involve the terrorists at all. So that's another possibility. Now, I'll I'll give you some examples of this a little later, of why it's so important to know the origins so that you um, know how much each of these issues are contributing to the problem. Well, let's get into that a little bit right now, since you've led up to it. And uh, thank you for presenting that very critical distinction. Uh, As you'd said, 
uh, ivory poaching is very much in the headlines today. There is a lot going on in terms of the international community destroying their ivory stockpiles and sending what, quote unquote, a strong message to consumers and poachers. So um, in terms of working with this large group of international law enforcement and what we talked about earlier before the break and co- collecting this genetic information that you can use specifically to ivory. Give us a little brief um, ex- uh, explanation of how you coordinated that or applied this your lab to ivory specifically and being able to connect that to specific elephants so that and then further how that creates a hotspot map and a DNA map. I realize that's a convoluted question, but I think you can work all of that in beautifully. Sure. So, again, working on the idea that dung is about the most accessible wildlife product there is and the idea that we could get DNA from dung, it occurred to me that I could easily collect a or create a geographic-based gene frequency map of elephants across the entire continent of Africa using dung simply by going to key wildlife areas and either myself or relying on rangers out in the field or other scientists to collect fresh dung samples from each of these areas and assemble a map of of, uh, DNA for African elephants across the whole continent. We developed... Uh, genetic markers for 16 different groups of genes to be able to distinguish individuals with high precision. And just to give you an, an idea of, of what that means, uh, you, you may have heard of CODIS, which is the, um, the uh, law enforcement database of, of criminal, of, of uh, genetic database of criminals. And when there's a, a crime scene and they get uh, DNA from a criminal, they genotype it, and they match it to this map with millions of individuals in it to figure out, is this specific individual present? And they use 13 groups of genes in that map. We use 16 for the elephants, just to give you an idea of the, the um, level of detail. And the reason that that's so important is that we're not only trying to find the individual, but we're actually trying to find where exactly did it come from in Africa. So we collected these dung samples, and we, we try to get about 30 fresh dung samples from each protected area, and we try to have each one come from a separate family group. And the way we do that is we just tell the people collecting, don't collect samples closer than a kilometer apart. So the likelihood of it being from a different group is sufficiently high that that works. So now we have almost 1,500 samples from across Africa, each one from a separate family, each unique, and each genotype at 16 different groups of genes, which gives us really incredible precision. Then what we do is we develop ways to get DNA out of ivory. My laboratory also pioneered that method. We get those same 16 groups of genes. And finally, the last piece is we created a statistical method that is allowed to, that it allows um, us to take all of the genotypes from those dung samples across the whole continent. And we do a process that's called smoothing, where you, uh, you um, essentially take places where you might have uh, a few number of samples 
but surrounded by areas where you have lots of samples, and you use that to kind of fill in the gaps of the gene frequency map. So we create a continuous gene frequency map across all of Africa, which for the first time allows you to say, where in Africa did this ivory sample actually come from? Whereas methods in the past could only say, of all the places I have reference samples from, which one of those places was most likely for the sample to come from? The problem with that latter approach is that it might not have come from the place uh, that you had the reference samples at all. So we, we don't no longer have that restriction. And it created an ability to very accurately tell where these ivory samples come from. We can now tell um, the origin of ivory to uh, within about 260 kilometers of its actual place of origin. That's closer than most protected areas. That's absolutely astonishing. And if our listeners would like to learn more about this DNA and um, mapping and, and matching of ivory, excuse me, ivory to uh, elephants, there is an um, incredible article on Newswatch at nationalgeographic.com, and the keyword search would be Powerful Weapon Against Ivory Smugglers DNA Testing, and you can learn a lot more about this. As we're listening, I ho- I'm hoping our listeners are getting the clue th- how critical Sam's work, the laboratory, and these dogs are going to be our being in terms of curbing the international wildlife crime and hopefully the slaughter of elephants. As Sam had covered, um, most of the ivory is destined for Asia. And um, I'm just wondering if you think that, and, and we're here hearing a lot on the news about many countries destroying their stockpiles. Do you think your DNA mapping... Uh, the mapping of the the matching of the ivory to the elephant, recognizing and being able to pinpoint hotspots to such a specific area, is sending is contributing to this strong message, and encouraging people or uh, these countries to destroy their stockpiles. Um, yes, there, there, the you know. There are so many ways to skin a cat, so to speak. And um, it's really important that we take as many approaches to this problem as possible. Um, Right now, there is a tremendous focus to stop demand for ivory. And that is very, very important over the long term. We really have to... um, uh, Get people to quit buying ivory or this problem is never going to go away. But when you also consider the fact that right now we're losing 50,000 elephants a year, perhaps, and as as much as a seventh of the population, maybe let's be conservative and say we're losing a tenth of the population a year. However you cut it, there is an urgent problem going on right now, and it's an urgent problem that demands not only people to stop buying ivory, but also it demands very effective law enforcement. You have to have them both, and that's what our work does. Now, I want to clarify one very important component of our work that I haven't yet mentioned, because this really gets to the crux of why our method is so powerful. We don't really apply these to an individual test that someone uh, gets caught going through the the airport with. 
We apply these tools to very large ivory seizures. These are seizures over a half a ton of ivory, and some of them go up to six and a half tons of ivory. These are worth tens of millions of dollars. They are the, the, they are the crux of this transnational organized crime because these are what the products of organized crime are, are um, built on. They are, if you imagine, these are, if you're dealing with a seizure worth $10 million, you're dealing with someone who can afford to lose that much money in a single incident. These are big time players. These are the ones that are doing huge amounts of damage to the illegal trade. So we focus our analyses on these very large seizures to figure out where are they coming from. This and is one of the most. Go yeah. ahead. I'm sorry. And and one of the most important um, uh, uh, elements of this is that when we started to analyze these large seizures over the past years, our first big seizure analysis was in 2006. And um, um, it was of a, a seizure that happened actually in 2002. To give you an idea, this was six and a half tons of ivory. It had 42,000 uh, what we call signature seals or hankos in it or chops sometimes they're called, which is a piece of ivory the size of a large piece of chalk. And uh, China and Japan will carve, uh, people in those countries will carve their initials at the bottom of them and use them to stamp their important documents. Those are worth about $200 each. There were 42,000 of those in this seizure worth alone about $8.5 million. So just to give you a scale of what we're talking about, we've got these large seizures. And, and one of the things that we noticed as we started analyzing these different groups of seizures is the same places started popping up over and over again. And actually, when we first started this work, people thought that these large seizures were made up of people a kind of collecting ivory that was stockpiled all over Africa, kind of like you're cherry picking from different places to make up a consignment of ivory that you ship. And we found that that's not what was happening, that most of this ivory was all from a given seizure were coming from the same place being poached over and over again. And then often it was moved to a neighboring country where it was shipped out. And one of the important things about that is when you get a seizure, you've got the bill of lading, the paperwork that goes with it. But that started often cases in a different country from where the animals were actually poached. So it was kind of a red herring because you were looking in the wrong place. Well, we were able to show that we could tell where the ivory was actually coming from and that the same places were popping up over and over again, which led us to believe that you have, while poaching's going on all over Africa, we actually have these hot spots, places that are being poached uh, repeatedly over time. If you think about it, to be a hotspot, you have to have enough elephants to be able to provide multiple tons of ivory repeatedly over multiple years and with a low risk of apprehension to the, apprehension to the poachers. There's not all that many places that can still do that in Africa. So that meant if we could identify these hotspots, we could really tell where to focus law enforcement. Well, this is amazing because um, one of the points we need to cut away to, to a break here. So I'm going to pick this up when we come back. And we're listening to Dr. Samuel Wasser and his laboratory, which is sort of the CSI of um, elephant uh, crime. So stick with us. We'll be right back. 
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back to Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss, and our guest today is Dr. Samuel Wasser, sort of the CIS creator of um, the genetic markers and DNA tracking to match ivory to elephants and how this works with ivory seizures and law enforcement to stop the wildlife trade. Sam, I have a question for you. There's a lot going on uh, right now, and this is just one that occurred to me as we were talking, and then we'll move on into some other important areas of how your work uh, really affects uh, what's going on in the poaching, as you were talking about right before the break. My question is, when we assign a value, as you were talking about to the break, $12 million to six tons of ivory or 26 tons of ivory or rhino horn, when we give it a monetary value, a number, do you think that changes um, how ivory is looked at when it's a value of ivory without the elephant. Does it remove the value of the elephant? Well, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing and you have to ask, this is a value to who, you know, who, who is this 
material um, of value to the cocaine is very valuable, but that doesn't mean that uh, we should still use it. But if and, we crushed, um, if we crushed or burned ten kilos of cocaine, it wouldn't stop the market, would it? No, it wouldn't. But there's a very big difference, and that's that ivory is not a renewable resource. Cocaine is. Thank you. So when you destroy this ivory, you are essentially um, preventing uh, the abuse of that smuggled ivory to re-enter the market. Um, It's very important for the work that we're doing because we're trying to focus in on new poaching areas. Where is poaching most prevalent? So and how does your work I, so how does your work help predict these events when you when you say to find new areas and try and head off these activities how does your work and what your lab does predict events Well because I, I was mentioning about these hot spots and that um in in the last uh segment of the show that um to be a hot spot you have to be able to have large amounts of elephants to provide huge amounts of poaching repeatedly over time. And there's not that many places that can do that. And so one of the things that we've seen, and one of the reasons why um, the uh, CITES has realized that knowing origin was so important is we've got the source countries, the transit countries, and the end user countries. And the transit countries is kind of where the ivory moves through, often where it gets smuggled. Those are real easy to switch. Because if law enforcement is too heavy, you can switch to a new country and just move it through that way. But if there's so much, um, a large number of elephants required to make up a hotspot, the source of the poaching, you can't just switch to a new place because you've got to have lots of elephants there to be able to, to provide the ivory that you need. And that means that source countries are very, very slow to change, unlike the transit countries. And... For that reason, if we analyze the origin of these recent large ivory seizures, it's almost certain that those most recent large ivory seizures are predictive of where the next poaching event is also likely to occur because these things keep occurring repeatedly over time in the same places, and all of the work that we have done suggests that. So you come back to, you asked about about, uh, crushing the ivory in your your, um, stockpiles, one of the reasons that this is really important is that if this ivory, this old ivory gets smuggled back into the market, then our ability to really tell where the new poaching is, is coming gets kind of muddied because we've got ivory that was uh, poached you know, 10 years ago and has been sitting in a government stockpile and all of a sudden now they're starting to move it again. Okay, that, so brings me, that brings me to a question. Let me just, just interject here because this, this is in the news today. Zimbabwe wants, uh, is requesting permission to sell their highly valued, at, they're saying $12 million worth of stockpiled ivory and rhino horn. So would it be possible for your lab, if such a sale were allowed between CITES and the International Consortium, would you be able to test this ivory for DNA prior to its entering to the market? And if so, would that do any good? Well, boy, that's a, there's, there's many 
things I want to say about that question. <laughs> we'll first say of a all, few of them. Um, first of all, by law, the ivory that Zimbabwe is going to uh, sell has to be from Zimbabwe. If they tried to sell ivory that were, were um, smuggled in from other places, that would be breaking the law. No, we, even if they had permission to sell their ivory, you're only allowed to sell ivory that died in your country. Now, Zimbabwe had an ivory sale in 2008. When that sale occurred, there was a nine-year moratorium. They agreed to a nine-year moratorium that there would be no more, they would not be allowed to sell their ivory for at least nine years. So that is 2017. The original sale that happened, the reason they put that nine-year moratorium on them was that nobody, there was really poor evidence as to whether or not legal sales promote more poaching. Now I think it's, it's, it's fairly well believed by most people, not everyone, that legal sales do promote poaching. But because they didn't know that at the time, they said, okay, if we allow this to go through, we need to have a nine-year moratorium on this, uh, on future sales. For It was going to be originally to all countries, but then at the last minute, a country put in a rider to the uh, amended the CITES uh, decision to say just only applies to the countries that are selling their ivory now, which was Botswana, Namibia, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. Now, let me just also point out that Zimbabwe was the last country added, and it was added with people kicking and screaming because they have had so many wildlife violations in that country that people were going, how could you possibly allow Zimbabwe to be one of the four countries to sell their ivory? But it was very political at the time because they were part of SADC, the Southern African Developing Countries and entity, and, and they were kind of put in there, and, and uh, um, there was a lot of resistance to them being allowed they, to, to sell their ivory in the first place, but they snuck in. Now... They're coming back, and they still have a lot of wildlife violations, and they want to preempt this nine-year moratorium and sell their ivory prematurely. Now, it should not be allowed for, for all kinds of reasons. So do you think your work, your collaboration, the, um, the mapping that you've done, the incredible science, data, research that you've been able to um, collate and gather, do you think it will have, hopefully, an effect for CITES and the International Consortium on Wildlife Crime to say no? To Zimbabwe? Yeah, say no to this sale? You know, frankly, I think that there are so many reasons to say no that that part is, is not nearly as important as the laws that the, the, the decisions that CITES has passed unanimously by the parties and the need to uphold their decisions. They can't backpedal. Okay, so, so what? So what? It's really apples and oranges. All right, so then what can law? We're we're getting close on our time. So, for um, a last question, what can law enforcement do to better focus anti-poaching efforts on these hotspot regions, and while also lowering consumer demand and also battling the poaching and the cartels? What can we do better, and how is your work going to uh, have implications for that? So poaching is going on all over Africa right now, but the number of really big hotspots, we believe, based on the work we've done to date, are much more limited than people think. And if that is correct, 
then what we are trying to do right now, and in, at the last CITES meeting, they passed decision 1683 that said all countries um, seizing large ivory, large ivory seizures over a half ton should submit their samples to, for origin analysis immediately to determine where is the source of these large seizures coming from. So over this next year, our primary goal in collaboration with iQuick is to analyze as many of those large seizures as we can to figure out where exactly are these hotspots located. Once we have that, then we have the opportunity to get a collective force between the, the actual source countries and international authorities and the international community in general to target law enforcement to those key hotspots and that creates the opportunity to shut down this illegal trade at its source, to really so, choke the networks that drive this trade. So with the figures that you gave us earlier, 50,000 elephants a year, that's one and a half times the population of Kenya's elephants alone. So that's giving some scope and scale to our listeners as to how much of a crisis this is, not only in terms of economic impact to Africa and tourism, uh, the impact on the survival of a species, and the impact that it's going to make into global economy and shutting down these cartels and wildlife trafficking. So um, where, where will this information, and I guess what I'm asking is, do we have time? You said this will take a year. Do we have time? Do elephants have time uh, and what what is being done in the short term to to bolster protection for elephants while this gets sorted out great question so I presented kind of the overall grandiose plan that we have but every new seizure that we do gives us immediate intelligence information about where a uh, hotspot is and we are able to target those immediately and so so it's not that we would um, necessarily wait until we had all those major hotspots identified. As we get them, we start to focus on those areas. So um, uh, we are analyzing many, many different seizures right now, and we are able to uh, um, target individual hotspots and get the information to those countries to say we need to do something about this. So this is why it's critical that your lab is in collaboration with the International Consortium and its, its collective parties of international law enforcement in, around the world, a global uh, community and the Secretariat of CITES with its, I think it's 176 or 179 member nations. So I'm hoping our audience can fully understand the impact that DNA testing and, and the dogs, let's not forget these incredible dogs who have the skill sets to non-invasively uh, go in and collect this data, which increases the uh, or decreases the time span that uh, Sam's lab is, needs to uh, spend in the field and do this sampling in this data. So, Sam, um, we've got just a couple minutes left. Um, I'd like to, our listeners to know that they can learn more about you on our guest bio page and online at the Center for Conservation Biology at conservationbiology.uw.edu. And they can follow us along on our Facebook page at Our Wild World Conservation and Twitter. And I hope you take the opportunity to uh, share this episode and learn more and participate and donate. So what can people do? We've got 
got just a few little time left. What can people do, the public, our listeners, what can they do to make a difference? I think you can write to the legislators in your country to tell them how serious you think this problem is and how important it is to you as a constituent that they do something about this. And um, if we mentioned IQIC, the group we work with, you know, it's also important to tell the U.S. government. Uh, we, we do also work with them on these issues. We, we help them in, uh, pr- we, by providing intelligence information that they can also use. The um, Wildlife Crime Task Force that President Obama created by executive order is an extremely important entity, and it's very important that people uh, support that. Just so that you know, um, yesterday the, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, came out and um, was actually trying to say that the recent legislation to stop uh, um, ivory coming into the country, uh, they were uh, protesting this because um, one of the biggest sources of ivory being sold in the United States right now is small pieces of ivory smuggled in from China, which a lot of hunters are buying and using to cut into the handles of their knives and their pistols. It's a major, major source of ivory coming into the United States. And the NRA did not want the the recent legislation to occur because that would prevent them from being able to sell their pistols on the market if there has any ivory in it. So that just kind of shows you how big of a problem we have and how important it is for people to speak up. You know, even if you are pro-hunting and pro-NRA, this is a different issue altogether. This is talking about the loss of a species across one of the, 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 the biggest continents in the world that is destroying our ecosystem. And to have something as silly as selling your pistol because it has a piece of ivory in it caused a entity as huge as the NRA to block the conservation of this incredible species is something for people to think about. Well, folks, you heard it here. What we have to think about and how even the smallest thing that you wouldn't think would have any larger implications, the ivory in a pistol handle does have huge implications. So there are petitions, there are places, there are letter writing campaigns. Please take advantage of these. Write your uh, uh, leaders, write your our global law enforcement organizations, sign petitions, share this, and follow us on Facebook. Share and pass it on. This is a critical issue. So today we've had our guest, Dr. Samuel Wasser. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all day. There is so much information we barely even touched the tip of the iceberg so perhaps as this moves on you'll come back and be our guest so thank you for joining us today it's been a pleasure my pleasure thank you for having me you're welcome and this is ellie weiss and our wild world join us again next week thank you again for joining us this week Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 